Okay, I want to teach you this morning, the title is Things Freely Given to Us by God. I could spend the whole time talking about that sentence. (laughs) That everything that you possess came from God. All of it. I got some news for you. You didn't do anything. You really didn't. He did it all. And we're going to see that today in a couple of ways that uh, I think will help you. Things freely given to us by God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. So what that sentence says is amazing. That the Holy Spirit was given to us For the purpose of showing us the things that God has freely given. Now, if the Spirit's not revealing some of that stuff to you as you go along, you're simply not listening because that's what he's doing. He's revealing things that Jesus provided, that the Father provided through his Son. Things freely given to us by God. Now, if you'll back up a couple of verses, a few verses in chapter 1. Verse 30 says this, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So he did it all. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing. You didn't do it, he did it. It's very important that you understand that. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who who became to us, because we're in him, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now, I see these things that God freely gave us in Christ, these four things that are listed. You can add on some others, but boy, these cover all the ground, really. I see it like a pyramid, almost, that at the top is wisdom. Sanctification, uh, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That redemption basically is the foundation of all these other things. Now, at the top of it is wisdom. Wisdom. Now, if you'll read 1 Corinthians 1, this whole passage of Scripture here is talking about wisdom. It's all over the place in this. For instance, he says that the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. That God at his dumbest is better than you at your best. You'd agree with that, wouldn't you? I certainly would. That the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. Uh, It's also wise, he says, not to boast. He did all this showing you that he did it all, that no one can boast. No one can boast. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God did it. You didn't. And can I tell you something? You still aren't doing it. You really still aren't doing it. He's doing it. He did it, and he's doing it. So let me just read you a couple of verses about uh, wisdom. Um, Proverbs 4, 7 through 9. Listen to this. 
the primary thing is wisdom. This is Solomon talking about wisdom. Solomon, supposedly the wisest man who ever lived, and so forth and so on. The primary thing is wisdom. Acquire wisdom. And with all your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. That in your prayer for, desire for, wisdom. In that process, God crowns your head with a garland of grace. So the pursuit of grace and the understanding of the finished work of Jesus leads you to wisdom. Not as the world knows wisdom. He also says that. There are two kinds of men in chapter 2. Those of the flesh, those of the spirit. Pursuing the spirit brings wisdom. It leads you to a place beyond the natural, the natural wisdom. It means at times, most of the time, or not, if not all of the time, listen to the spirit in your choices and decisions, in the way you apply knowledge, how you live it out. God will give that, what he says in, in uh, uh, James. He says, if we ask God for wisdom, he surely will give it. And he doesn't abrade you for asking. So it's listening to the Spirit. That the, the top here, to me, is, are people like us, just human beings like us, that know the Lord, who have received Him, who are, our lives or hearts are open to Him, have a relationship with Him on an ongoing basis. Those are the kinds of people who can hear the Spirit and make choices based upon what the Spirit leads you to say or do. It's often easier for us to follow man's wisdom or our own. And sometimes they coincide. Matter of fact, I think the farther you get into it, the more they do coincide. That your thoughts or ideas or uh, understanding of what needs to be done really coincides with his. So, I'm not going to preach on wisdom today. That would take a whole other message or series to do that and I'm not doing that but I want to tell you that the the, episode, the, the the highest level of what God has given is wisdom so Jesus has come to us become to us wisdom he's also become to us righteousness righteousness dikaiosune is the Greek word for righteousness now, again, I can do a whole series on righteousness and have, okay? I'm just going to hit some high spots of this wonderful, wonderful, incredible, life-altering, eternity-altering gift that's available, righteousness. Now, I want you to understand something about righteousness. Righteousness, means, always means the same thing. It means right relationship or right standing with God. That's what it means. In other words, someone who is righteous, there is nothing between them and God. There's nothing, no barrier, no separation, no uh, degrees of, of uh, ill will at all. You are perfectly in right standing with God. Okay? That's what it means. Now, you have to understand this. Righteousness is a noun. It's not a verb. 
when you were in school, you know the difference in nouns and verbs, right? You were taught a noun is a person, place, or thing, verb, action word, to-do word, performance word. It's something that's moving and doing and so forth. Righteousness is a noun. It's not a verb. Righteousness is an entity. It's a positional reality for you. You are righteous. You understand that there's no degrees of righteousness, don't you? There's no percentages of righteousness. <laughs> you can't be 80% righteous and 20% a jerk. You know. <laughs> you can't be... See, you're, if you think that, you're looking at it on really uh, human terms or through the eyes of your performance-based flesh is really how you're looking at it, if you see it that way. That doesn't mean that some people don't act better than others according to our standards of acting, which is uh, we all have some standards of what good people do and good things that people do and so forth. But you're all righteous. Right standing with God. People stumble over this because they see the fact, how can I be righteous and still sin? Right? Isn't that the real key? How can I be righteous and still sin? Because God declares you righteous. He imparted righteousness to you. You didn't get it on your own. You didn't earn it. You didn't perform for it to be a reality. God gave it to you as a gift. God made you righteous as a gift. The only thing you can do to get it is to receive it and understand it and walk in it and believe it. And eventually, in time, it will help you begin to live it out. It really does. People do righteous deeds, more righteous deeds, when they understand they're righteous than they do when they think they're unrighteous. It's really true. I mean, if you see yourself as unrighteous, not in right standing with God, not good with God, God's not good with you, uh, no, no matter what, then you say, well, heck with it then. I can't ever attain that, so I'll act any way I want to. What difference does it make to God, one way or the other, if, I, if I'm not righteous? So I think this is also a tipping point in people's belief system. It's a, it's a place where I've seen over the years in many, many churches across the country, I see people that when you talk about this righteousness, it's kind of a, a, a tipping point. It, it, this is what causes them to tip over and begin to see and receive some realities that they've never seen before in their lives that it's very difficult for them to believe because it sounds too good to be true. But when they understand that they're righteous, everything begins to change in their thinking. And in my own thinking, it did the same thing. When I was uh, way back, golly, I don't know, 80, early 80s, this verse in 1 John 1, 9 is a tipping point for me. Now, there are others. There are other tipping points along the way. But the big one was this, where I was simply reading, studying, praying one day, and 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that is probably the most misapplied, misunderstood verse in the Bible. You know how many verses there are in the Bible that say you confess your sins in order to be forgiven? 
That one. That's it. That's the only one. And it's been misinterpreted and misapplied. And therefore, it's led to a whole generations. I'm talking about centuries, centuries of mixture in the church. With this one verse more than any other, I think. Because they'll say, see, you've got to confess your sins in order to be forgiven. So you've got to keep on confessing them. If you have to confess them to be forgiven once, you've got to keep on confessing them to be forgiven again and again and again and again and again to stay in right standing with God. That doesn't mean that God, you're not God's child. And it, it really doesn't, uh, some will say, it doesn't mean that you're not God's child or you have some kind of relationship with God. He's just really mad at you and you're not going to be blessed until this is taken care of. Which is just about as bad as saying you're going to hell. Almost. So, Righteousness is a tipping point. When I read that verse that day, it just exploded in my mind. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just or righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I put it in context, immediate, put it in context. And really, I began to see quickly, this verse is not a verse for the believers. It's a verse for unbelievers. It's, it's, it's a verse that's calling people to Christ, calling people to a relationship with God. That's what it is. Because the first eight verses... Say things like this, the one that we knew, the one that we touched, the one that we were around, the one that we have fellowship with. We want you to know him like we know him, and here's how you can know him. If you'll just confess the fact you're a sinner, if you, if you agree with God that you need help, that's all it is. It's agreeing with God that you need help, and if you will do that, he'll be faithful, and he'll be righteous and just to forgive you of your sins. And he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So it goes to another level. He doesn't forgive you, he does forgive you of your sins. He also cleanses you from everything that is unrighteous. Now notice that, that word, cleanses. Doesn't cover it up, he cleanses it. Meaning, he takes it away. It's, Though your sins were as scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they appear as crimson, they shall be as wool. He cleanses us. And what God cleanses stays cleansed. <laughs> he cleanses us. He cleanses us from everything that's not righteous or in right standing with him. So you're righteous. It's very important that you know that and, rem and remind yourself of that and talk to other people about it and be confirmed in that. It's important that you stay understanding this truth and reality that's yours. You're righteous. You didn't do it, you can still sin, you can still mess up, you can still do all that, but doing good didn't make you righteous and doing bad won't make you unrighteous. God did it. It's a God-performed, God-initiated, unchangeable, eternal, immutable reality. You're righteous. He is to us righteousness. And then it says he is to us sanctification. Now, again, we've taught on this many different times and ways. Matt's taught on it. Uh, Javen taught on it. I've taught on it for years, so forth and so on, about sanctification. So I just want to remind you of some things that you probably already heard me say. Matter of fact, I probably never will say anything you haven't heard me say at some point in time. Again, I don't know. I said a lot. Sanctification. Greek word is hagiosmos. Hagiosmos. Which means holy, to be holy. Sanctification 
to make holy is a dictionary definition of it. Hebrews' definition of it is to have been made perfect. You're sanctified or made perfect. Made perfect. You're sanctified. Let me read you a few verses. Hebrews 10. Verse 14. It says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Are you sanctified? Therefore you've been made perfect. For how long? For all time. All time and eternity. You're sanctified. A few more verses. Uh, verse 18. I like this one. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no, no longer any offering for sin. Can't. There's nothing. You don't need to offer up a sacrifice of any sort for sin. Why? Why don't I? Why don't I? I'm the one that did it. Why don't I? Doesn't mean you won't. <laughs> there are consequences to stuff. I, I agree. Natural consequences. But why don't I pay the ultimate price for sin? Because Jesus did. It's already been paid. You don't have the currency to pay for it anyway, but it's already been done. Again, it's one of these realities that's absolute. Uh, let me read you some more verses. Acts 20.32 says, And now I commend you to God and the, the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Past tense. The New American Standard gets it right on sanctification every time. The NIV doesn't. It says being sanctified, which is not the correct uh, interpretation of these verses. I think they've changed it some already, or they are in the future. Anyway, past tense. Sanctified is past tense. It's already been done. 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 2 says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctified, past tense, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're sanctified. Now, here's several different approaches to sanctification that almost every, uh, it'll fit in one of these categories in every system I know of, religious system, just about. The Catholics believe in baptismal sanctification, for example. And th this is also true. They also believe that not only does baptism, at your baptism, sanctification take place, but the, the root cause of you being a sinner is taken care of. That you're, you're not only, that you're holy at baptism, basically. But they contradict that all over the place by their practices. Totally. With con constant confessions of sin. Uh, really the church is their savior. You're saved through the church. You're saved through the, the stuff of the church is really what saves you. Uh, Confess your sins. Do penance. Uh, get absolution from the priest. All these different kinds of practices that say you really don't believe in baptismal sanctification. Or you wouldn't have to do all this other stuff after it. 
And most uh, Reformed theologians, Calvin would be a leading proponent of it, John Calvin, but Luther, to a certain extent, Zwingli, all, all of them really believed in, ref, uh, mostly Reformed the, the, theologians believe in progressive sanctification. It means that it's a process and you make progress in it. They would say, okay, I agree with you. Judicially, you're sanctified. Experientially, you're not yet, but ultimately you will be. That's the approach. Judicially or positionally, you are sanctified. Experientially, you're not. You've got, you got to grow in sanctification. But ultimately, you're going to get there, and that's probably in heaven when you get to heaven. You'll be fully sanctified then. Well, I, I used to get in trouble for teaching this. I mean, I went to this big conference one time in Houston. And, you know, there's some... Uh, the people that were speaking there, you all would know, have heard of. And I taught on sanctification one night. I thought the, a couple of those leaders were just going to have a heart attack. <laughs> I did. And I'm thinking... I was really, really mild and calm in what I presented. I could present a whole lot more. But you get in trouble when you say this, that you're sanctified. You have been made perfect. You are holy. Hagios, you're holy. Holy, Matt told you what holiness means. Here's another twist on holiness. God is holy. You agree with that? All right, that means something about God. First of all, the... the Indication is that he's other. He's, he's other than. He's different from. He's, he's different. He's not normal. He's not common. You know what I mean? He's not common. He's different. He's other. Now that whatever anything about holiness is applied to God, it can be applied to you. You're as holy as he is holy. You're as righteous as he is righteous. It's a God kind of righteousness and a God kind of holiness that Jesus bestowed upon us all and gave to us as a free gift. He made him who knew no sin, talking about Jesus, he made him, God made him, who knew no sin, to become sin, to be sin. Really, that's not in the Greek. It's he made him sin. He made him the embodiment of sin. When he took the sins of the world upon himself, he was the sinner of major proportions because he had them all on him, all of them on him. And in that, in that, we might become the righteousness of God, meaning God's type or kind of righteousness. We are God-righteous. We are God-holy. God-like holy. I'm not saying you're God. I'm saying you're holy like God. I, you didn't do it. He did it. This is a part of what he gave you as a gift. You're holy. 
It takes a while for your mind to wrap itself around that. It takes a while for you to see yourself that way and not see yourself the way you used to see yourself. You're holy. You're not lacking in any aspect of holiness. You're holy. You're sanctified. You've been made holy. You've been made perfect. You've been sanctified. So, I would say, I agree that you are judicially sanctified. I agree with that. As far as judgment is concerned, you're not going to be judged. You're judicially sanctified without judgment. You're also, what's the other word? Not just judicially, but positionally sanctified. Your position causes you to be sanctified, meaning that you're in him. That's your position. You're a child of God. He's in you. You're in him positionally. Where you are positioned, you're sanctified. Experientially, same thing. Here's here's my definition of it. It's not progressive sanctification. It's not judicial sanctification. It's not positional sanctification. It is actual Actual sanctification. You have been actually sanctified. All of you for all time. All of you for all time. You're sanctified. You're holy. You understand that you couldn't have a union with God. You couldn't come into union with God unless you were. You're righteous because you're sanctified. You're righteous because you're holy. You're in right standing with God for what reason? I'm holy. I'm holy as he is holy. That's the only way anybody can be in union with God is to be holy. You can't be in union with a, with a, a holy God, cannot be in union with unholy anything. He, he, he isn't. He's not in union with it. He's something other than that. <laughs> so... You know, this logic of growing progressive sanctification is just another way of saying you don't measure up and you need to pay attention to your morals, you need to pay attention to the way you act, you need to confess your sins, you need to do all this stuff that religion requires of you to do. That's what it says. So you're sanctified. And you're righteous because you're holy. Okay, let's look at the next one. Redemption. The Greek word is apolutrosis. Apolutrosis. That means to be released by ransom or releasing by ransom. Being set free, really, as a ransom slave. Someone ransoms you in order to bring you from where you are to liberty and freedom. You're ransomed. You're paid for, for example. I've got three illustrations of this that I want to give you this morning about being ransomed or redeemed. And in redemption, in my opinion, is where the Lord really <laughs> reaches out and captures your heart. Where he, he gets you emotionally in this. It's not just a matter of your brain. Uh, uh, 
believing the facts about sanctification or righteousness or wisdom. It's not just your brain engaged there. This brings your emotions there, brings your heart there, helps you understand how good our wonderful Heavenly Father really is and how so much He was willing to do to ransom you from slavery. And we were all slaves to sin. This is where he endears himself to anyone who will see the reality and the truth of what he's done. This propels us in a lot of ways. Our emotions propel us many times as much as our brains do, our thinking does. Sometimes your thinking is changed through your emotional response to something, actually. So it's important that you see this. That God really, 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 really loves you a whole lot. You remember the story of Hosea and Gomer in the book of Hosea? I have a whole series that I've done on that. There's all kinds of types and shadows and things in that that's just remarkable, actually, the whole story. The basis of the story is Hosea marries this woman by the name of Gomer. First of all, it's not a great name for a woman, I don't think, but <laughs> hey, Hosea may not be that great a name for a man, I don't know. Anyway, Gomer. And I have in my mind what Gomer kind of looks like. And she's gorgeous. She's a beautiful woman. Unfortunately, the marriage was very, very difficult for Hosea. They ended up having three children together. And, they, and all different names. And those names mean amazing things and all that. I'm just not going to go into it. But Gomer kept running off and prostituting herself. Now, this is a, really a, a prophetic uh, picture of God's pursuit of Israel and all of that. But it's also, from a New Covenant perspective, a picture of God's pursuit of us. That we were, he, she kept running back, and he would go get her and bring her home, clean her up, encourage her, all this stuff, and she would recommit, and then she'd run off again. The last time she ran off. Hosea goes to get her, and she's enslaved herself or put herself in a position of being a slave uh, as a prostitute to this man. He goes and he finds her, and he says, I want to redeem her. I want to buy her. And the guy says, okay, well, everything's for sale. What do you got? What do you got to offer? Hosea comes really pretty much committed to not trying to bargain. So the guy asked him, what have you got? And he said, I have 15 shekels of silver. I don't remember exactly how much that is, but it's a pretty good bit. And the guy says, nah, that's not, that's not enough. Uh, what else you got? He said, well, how about a, a homer of barley, a container of grain, barley? And I said, well, that's, that's better. So you got 15 shekels of silver and a homer of barley. He said, you got anything else? You got anything else to throw in? I mean, come on. 
What are you not telling me? Hosea says, essentially, I don't have anything else. I mean, I've got half a homer of barley that we're eating on at home. I guess I can throw that in. It's already been eaten out of, but I'll give it to you. And the guy says, sold. I'll take it. And he takes Gomer and takes her home. This time she stayed. (laughs) Anyway, literally what Hosea did in the picture that's presented here is that the Redeemer, Hosea, redeemed her at a cost of everything he possessed. Everything. That's all he's got. There are two other illustrations in the New Testament, Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is a a series of parables about the kingdom of God. Interesting reading sometimes. You just kind of read them all and try to figure out what they're all applying to and what what happens. Like the ten, the wise virgins, the foolish virgins, and all, all the ones that are there. If you remember Matthew 13, there, there's a parable there that's called, uh, well, it's not called anything. Uh, it's about this pearl merchant that travels everywhere, I mean, all over the world, I'm assuming, in search of rare and beautiful pearls that he he buy and sell. That's what he would do with them. Probably collected some, too. In his travels, he eventually ran across the most beautiful... uh, perfect, gorgeous pearl. Obviously the best one he'd ever seen in his life and probably would ever see again. People have called this pearl the pearl of great price. You've heard that probably, haven't you? They've applied that to Jesus, saying Jesus is the pearl of great price, interpreting that parable that the merchant is you, Pearl is Jesus. This guy liked the pearl so much, he sold everything he had, all of it, sold it all, and paid that full price for this one pearl. Gave everything he had. Interpretation is that the merchant is you, the pearl of great price is Jesus, and he's worth you selling out everything you've got to possess him which I I agree with. If that were required, it's worth it. But we'll get back to that in a minute. The last parable illustration is the man who was walking in a field one day and he discovered a hidden treasure, treasure. This treasure was hidden in this field. And he stumbled over it, stumbled upon it and saw that It was of such great value, of such incredible, overwhelming value that he went and sold everything he had and he came and he bought that field. Almost every evangelical teacher I've ever heard interprets those two parables 
as Jesus being the pearl, Jesus being the treasure. We just stumbled upon them. We saw they were wonderful treasures that we, we saw Jesus, having Jesus would be worth everything. And what's required is you sell out to God. I mean, you have to sell all your goods and stuff necessarily, but you have to sell out to God. He's worth anything you have to give to possess. And I agree with that, really. agree with the, the concept. He is worth us giving anything if that's required. So we spend our lives trying to give God more. Giving more effort, more time, more money, more this, more that, more, to give more. He's worth everything. I, I need to give more. When grace shows us that all three of these situations that I mentioned are actually the exact opposite of what most evangelical Christians believe and teachers teach. That that pearl of great price doesn't represent Jesus. That pearl of great price represents you. He found you. That treasure in that field doesn't represent Christ. The man who found it represents Christ and that treasure represents you. And the man who found it went and sold everything he had to purchase that field. Because he knew there'd be some other treasures in it for one thing. Listen folks, as far as you're concerned... God redeemed you. He bought you back. And it cost him everything he had. God's all in. He who did not withhold his only son, he who did not refuse to withhold his only son, but gave him freely up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? My relationship with God is not based upon the quality of my commitment to him. My relationship with God is based upon the quality of his commitment to me. And he's all in, as far as I'm concerned. God put everything where his mouth was. He who did not spare his only son, but freely gave him up for us all. It says something about you and your value to him. That in all the universe, 
You're the best, choicest thing that he's created. You're the pearl of great price. Now I want you to understand something. God did this. God did this. God did this. You didn't do it. God did it. And it is an absolute, utterly, God-initiated, God-performed, unchangeable, eternal, immutable reality for you. That's how good he is toward you. Now let me pray for you. Why don't you stand? We're going we're to worship just a moment after we get through here. If I, if I could help you uh, not understand what I talked about today, all of you got brains to understand. It's, if you can own it, own this lavish, extravagant, hard to understand, hard to wrap your mind around grace and love. There's no end to it, no limit on it. You don't feel as loved as you are, I promise. You do not feel as loved as you are. None of us do. But I want to I want to feel it more and more, don't you? Lord, I pray for these dear ones. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us all to receive, understand, receive all that Christ died to give us. Thank you for these marvelous gifts, things freely given to us by God. Thank you that he has become to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that it's finished, it's done, it's written, it's over. Lord, we sure look forward to seeing you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.